0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. It is an absolute delight to be here soul searching in a post-truth age I'm joined by amala wad and sarah crasterstein my name is fenella Canabone. i also wanted to acknowledge the traditional custodians wherever you happen to be today i'm on gadigal land of the eora nation and i pay my respects to elders past present and emerging uh, it's a great privilege to be here and of course always was and always will be aboriginal land um a big conversation today for antidote Uh, and as always it's a shame not to have these conversations in person but it's a real delight to be able to chat to my guests all about the various edges of belief what it means to believe uh, the endless search for answers what drives this need to understand ourselves and, and how we exist in the world, uh, there's superb stories that you're going to be hearing, interwoven narratives uh, from Sarah Krasnstein's book, The Believer Encounters with Love, Death, and Faith. And then Amala Wad's amazing book, too, travails in the many various ways that we humans, including herself, uh, seek answers, spiritual answers, healing, uh, in her new book. In my past life i was cleopatra a skeptical believer's journey through the new age so big conversation i don't even think we're going to be able to get to to all the edges of it but we'll give it a good try and it's an absolute delight to introduce sarah and amal hello guys nice to see you
1: hi nice to see you
0: (laughs) hello okay we're talking about belief soul searching in a post-truth age I'm not going to ask you what post-truth age means just yet because that's a really big one and it's going to take some unpacking. But let's start with the first part of it, soul searching, what it means to be a soul searcher, to believe for both of you. And, of course, in the context about how you have, have challenged uh, the idea of what it means to believe in your book. So, Sarah, let's start with you. What is, it, what is, what is belief to you in a nutshell? Can you, can you even answer that?
2: Well, I don't think I can answer it neatly, which might be part of the answer. But kind of just <laughs> walking around it and holding it up—it's a couple of things um, for me at least that come to mind. The first is that it is, you know, uh, a search for an answer in the absence of certainty. That's kind of the first prerequisite, I suppose. And the second—the second thing that comes to mind is that it's integral to a feeling of belonging um, or connection with, um, you know, the human collective. Um, and the third thing, which is something that I kind of was reminded of uh, again and again in the in the writing of this last book, was that it's a story that we tell ourselves um, a, to kind of deal with this searching. I think soul searching is a really good way of putting it, but these these questions that we carry inside that we feel quite vulnerable around. You know, fundamental issues like why are we here? Why do we die? Um, you know, why is there injustice? Why do bad things happen to good people? All of these, um, these questions that for all of us have carried, you know, all of us mean that we're quite vulnerable and the belief that we, um, you know, subscribe to is, is part of the story that we wrap around, uh, that, that tenderness, that vulnerability or discomfort inside. Um, so it kind of acts as a cloak of story uh most of the time so that's a very long way i think of not answering the question but maybe there's something there
0: which is good because it means we've got something to talk about for the next little while um but amal hearing what <laughs> sarah has to say and, and how and how you kind of have shaped your your notion of what belief might be is is belief inherent to all of us how do you look at it um,
1: I would say I, I second most of what, what Sarah said, if not all. I Belief for me is a really tricky thing because I think it's very loaded as a term, but generally I see it as a form of security. I think it's it offers a sense of stability in an uncertain world so people will believe something wholeheartedly because it gives them belonging, it gives them structure, it gives them a grounding that they might struggle so that no matter what else else happens, I believe this to be true. And I think that beliefs can shift very easily because it is a psychological thing. And you yourself, uh, probably um, you have a certain character or disposition. And what I have seen personally through my research, through life experience and from my own experiences is that often we are a certain type of person um, and even though we might evolve and should evolve and change, we might just redirect that energy to another belief. So I know a lot of people who've converted religions, for example. And so, you know, the belief is completely different in a lot of ways, but the energy that goes into that belief is the same. So what that tells me is that this person feels some sense of security in that belief system. Is it inherent? I mean, there are definitely some people who would say, I don't know what to believe, but yes, because the atheists, lot, for example, are as strong and and fervent believers as the believers. So I don't know how, there's, there's so much sort of discrimination and mockery of people who believe in God, for example, or any kind of spiritual pursuits. And yet I don't see it as being any different to a person saying there is no God, because to me, that is a really fervent belief based on no evidence, because you can't prove that God doesn't exist. And so I, I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but the 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 structure of belief remains the same. If that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, you're nodding uh, viciously or uh, vicariously there, Sarah. A better way of saying it: vigorously. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think. To that's what Amal is the, um, What do you think?
2: Yeah. No. I mean, I think the most interest the most interesting to me things to write about are. the things that I enjoy reading about. And it's exactly that perspective that she's articulated so beautifully, which is that, you know, it's not really about um, defeating or, you know, rebutting someone's position. It's more about what it reveals about the world through their eyes. And I think that's what we both have an interest in exploring, um, what it could mean rather than, you know, a takedown of of anyone's
0: beliefs just on their own terms. For sure. Well, we'll probably get into all of this as, as we get through the next little while, but maybe we could go back to the, the beginning a little bit. Um, and Sarah, with you, what was it that, that sent you on your path to, to investigate this, to, to think about what it is that we believe And in the book? And I know you started off with a story uh, about being on a subway and seeing a choir. So tell us about the beginnings of this journey for you.
2: Yeah, so this book, I mean, it didn't start off as an exploration of belief. Um, you know, whenever I set out on something that's going to be a, a long-term project, I really don't know at the beginning what what it's going to be about. I have a vague idea, but kind of the material reveals itself over time. And with The Believer, it, the, it, the project started with um, really stumbling across uh, Mennonite choir. They look like Amish folks, for those who aren't aware, um, they were Mennonite missionaries in uh, New York City, and they wear homemade dresses, and the men have just square beards, no mustache, and they look like they've, you know, been catapulted 150 years into the future uh, from a bygone era. And they were singing, you know, very, their hymns, they're evangelical uh, Christians, and you know, this this juxtaposition of these very earnest people doing this very earnest thing in a uh, social context where no one was looking twice at them. Uh, And on top of it, the fact that I found the way they were singing to be unexpectedly moving caused me to kind of think about what was going on and my own curiosity and want to know more. So I ended up spending a couple of months visiting with those families in their homes.
0: And, and that was the start of, of this book. For sure. And what about for you, Amal? Uh, It's, it's a, it's an interesting thing when you listen and and, and read your book, you talk about the fact that you've always been a soul searcher, someone who's been happy to kind of investigate and look into different techniques about, about healing and and seeking tarot. And even before we started this conversation, we're talking about the tarot cards and, and things like that. What set you on this journey to start to try and unravel or unpack the ideas that you start to bring up in, in your book?
1: In all honesty I really wanted to make sense of this spiritual world in a modern age and see if we can find our way out of the weeds so that it actually is useful to people. I, I was deeply concerned that we were regressing a bit when I saw I don't know a lot of the behaviours I was witnessing I suppose were just sort of very performative, um, and and this isn't to lay judgment on anyone because I I truly believe that that people are seeking solutions and an end to their pain, and they would you know at, at least at a shallow level most people believe they want a happy life whether or not they really do because it's a little bit hard to be happy <laughs> you know I don't know but I, I actually now that I've had more time to think about this book and why I set out on it because it, it was a really difficult book to write. I um I really think I was trying to say okay this is what we have and this is what you can do with it and this is where you can go with it and it's up to you to decide that not for me to tell you there's no right or wrong I don't give people a black and white solution in the book I actually try to explore the the levels of uh, well I guess the layers I suppose of what belief offers or practice and ritual because it is as old as we've been here like it's it's not new for humans to try to commune with the unseen or try to elevate their ordinary human experiences. But do we do that just for that momentary feeling of rapture? There's an experience that you can have in a ritual, for example, or do you do it so that you can improve your life and become more evolved and sophisticated in the world and in a way be more of use to the world so that you aren't somebody who is like, hashtag living my best life, I I need the next hit. And once again, if that's somebody's life choice, that's not for me to judge, but I would query whether or not that is truly joyful or peaceful to to be operating on uh, external validation or needing sort of external fulfillment. Like when this happens, I'll be happy. When I have this vision board completed and everything's been ticked off, I'll be really, well, you won't because I've never met anybody who's uh, achieved all their goals and they are quote unquote happy. So, what are we really looking for, and why? What does it give us? And is there really, uh, is there really a way we can be more fulfilled and at ease in this world, so that we are living more peacefully, not just within ourselves, but with each other? Because we are here together. We're on this big rock, and really, we lack unity. And um, mm. if there's one thing COVID has shown me, it's that there is nothing more unifying than than a, a pandemic. <laughs> And yet we've still found a way to create division. You're not, you know, you're against vaccination. I'm not. Um, There's a lot of punching down. And I mean, this isn't about vaccination. I'm not interested in discussing that, but I'm giving you an example of how it doesn't take long for humans to find conflict. So uh, that is to me uh, a sign of somebody who, you know, probably isn't really fulfilled within because they, they are just latching onto the external world. But having said that, to simplify, yeah, I have always had an interest in it because I was raised in religion. So for me, you know, when you're raised in religion, it's, it's inbuilt, this idea that there's something more than what we can see. I guess my duty in my 30s was really to understand what that true value was. Like, what does this really mean for me? And how does it make me a stronger, more evolved, better
0: person? Could you talk to me a bit about that? And you bring up the fact that you were raised in religion. I I was too. And therefore, I have a very healthy scepticism as as one would as a result of all the other types of belief that are out there. And then you get older, and then you have scepticism about the belief that you were brought up in. As well, so all these sort of things start to kind of enmesh with each other. How did you, or how have you, uh, Amal, balanced those kind of conflicting forces? What you were raised with, the things that you you love to find out about when it comes to all these different types of um, spiritual uh, seeking uh, elements that you talk about in the book, and, and where you are today. Tell me a bit about how they um, sort of how you evaluate that today.
1: It's funny. I don't think there is much friction between them at all, and I think that's what's so interesting. I think belief is so unifying, and there's such a currency to belief that what surprised me the more I spent time exploring New Age was realizing how unoriginal it was. It wasn't. It wasn't terribly <laughs> new at all. It was completely derivative. In well, not completely, but let's say 99% derivative, I would say. But they probably can't uh, call it know, the
0: same same age because it's not so easy to say anyway.
1: But <laughs> it, it's just it's it's a, an evolved, I suppose it's a modern interpretation. Um, I don't I don't think there's a huge issue with people reinventing what's already been discovered or decided. I, I think that the times change and that demands us to be reflective and look inward and see how it applies in the modern sense. Um, but I don't actually think... I think religion, the difference between religion and, say, more spiritual, that's, a lot of people don't like using that word for some reason... Spiritual pursuits. I see them. Spirituality is as a much more of a, a seeker's journey. It is, I guess, a question, not knowing if you're going to get the answer. Whereas religion is very definitive. It's handing you all of this knowledge and saying, this is what it is, and that's all there is. And so I, I think that's probably. Um, I don't really talk about how I feel about religion because I don't. I don't want to lay judgment on anyone. I understand. I understand religion's value. Like I, I, I think religion. Um, is a neutral in some ways because, not in all ways, but in a lot of ways it can be. It's, you know, people bring to something who they are. So, you know, like I've met people who are so peaceful and I've met people who are so violent inside. And so their interpretation of the same thing is going to be reflective of that nature that they show. And I I think that for me, what I walked away with was a complete appreciation for how, unified most beliefs were, which is that we are sort of, uh, that, that there is something greater than that, than us, I suppose, but also that we are at one with that, that there is a sense of oneness. I actually think that's ancient, but I also think it it permeates uh, the modern spiritual pursuits. One of the things that really comes up, I guess, in modern spirituality is uh, this idea that you are not a human having a spiritual experience, you're you you're an energetic being or a spiritual being having an earthly experience. And so this is very temporary. This is just the suit you've put on for now and you're going to live again and again. And, and once again, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, can't, I can't answer that for people. I can only say that there is more unity in the belief systems than people realise. That, yes, that there are differences and divergences. And I would say as well, religion tends to be quite massive. Dylan in a lot of ways because you have you know because god is a he and 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 it's sort of I, I think in the lead up to that you had all this mythology that was the divine feminine and villain gods goddesses those mythologies were very much about you know the, the soap opera ancient soap operas that reflect back reflected back the worst behaviors of humans um, with these god, god and goddesses who were superhuman, but they behaved as badly as we do. <laughs> so it, it's really religion, spirituality is always us reflecting ourselves back to ourselves, like asking, who are we and why do we do what we do and how do we connect to something greater so that we can do better? That's, that's how I think
0: Personally, what I've taken away from that. I hope it answers your question. I think I waffled a little bit. Oh, oh <laughs> Sarah, I mean, do, listen, listening to what Amal has to say, can you can you have a response there? What do you think? Uh, I mean, one of the things that I kind of, that, that I picked out there, which I think comes up in your book as well really clearly, is that there is a unified, you know, regardless of whether it's Christianity, um, when you speak to the Mennonites or the creationists, or you, we go and visit the UFO, um, hear about the, the gentleman and the UFOs or the ghost hunters, that by listening to them, the scepticism starts to fall away because we're hearing people's stories. We start to hear their truth. So what what do you think about that?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm all described um, what I had seen as well, which is that, you know, the, the stories themselves can be quite different or purport to be totally new um, or distinguish themselves in a variety of ways. But what they all have in common is that um, impulse you know, at, at, at their heart. So it's less, you know, I'm less kind of interested in what people were telling me about their beliefs and more interested in the commonalities I was hearing about the underlying impulse to believe something or to have a story. And the other thing that I thought Amal was describing beautifully was this impulse that we all have to project our own, you know, fears or capacities or strengths on, you know, not just each other, but also, you know, this greater power outside ourselves that may or may not exist. And, you know, if we could kind of just look at those underlying impulses, the underlying emotional patterns, we might be able to have a dialogues that at present seem completely impossible because we keep on decanting the impulse into these very simple stories about blame and anger and who's right and who's wrong and twisting the details and the facts in particular ways when if we all could just take a step back and think isn't it crazy that all this will end and that makes me feel atrocious given the things in my life that give it meaning and which i love and we could just sit with that um but you know that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen on Twitter. It's not going to happen in any of the tabloid newspapers. And so we keep on finding ourselves on the same, you know, washing spin cycle of, you know, pointing fingers and, you know, investing heavily in things that to the outside just seem nonsensical. Can I just add one
1: thing? I I would say that fear and I know I know a lot of people think that religion is a very fear-based sort of administration, and, and to an extent it can be, because it can be punitive and all of that. But, uh, you know, I do feel that even I've noticed that in modern lovey-dovey spirituality, like this idea, if, if you have a negative thought, that's your, on you. You've created your own negative world, and it's your fault that you have gotten sick, and... Um, you know, if you want to manifest, don't you dare for one second not believe that it's possible. Because if you if you believe that it won't arrive, and then it's on you. And I, I I think it's a really confounding, confusing world sometimes. Because on the one hand, it's like telling people to surrender and detach, and everything is divine timing, and you know you are you are a co-creator with with something divine. And on the other hand, where's your vision board and how many things are you going to tick off and why are you, you know, like it's it's this, if you're a vulnerable person looking for answers, it can really mess with your head, I, I think. Uh, and I, that was probably another reason why I wanted to throw open the, you know, the blinds on this to sort of say, well, like, why are we, why are so many people vulnerable to that are robbing them of their serenity of their ability to decide for themselves it's not actually improving their lives it's actually just creating more fear more hesitation uh more dependency and i I think that you know your your best bet in life is to be self-sufficient and have an inner fulfillment that is your true guidance system and and whether or not that is with a, a strict belief in a higher power or not isn't the point. It's that, you know, how you feel directs your experience of life. I do believe that um, to a, a certain extent. Um, we can't control everything. We certainly can control, I suppose, our responses. Uh, you know, that's a very popular saying. And once again, I agree with that. But that's not to say you're never allowed to have a bad day or you're never allowed to have a bad thought or you have to be some well-oiled machine that is just always on point and never having you know, doubts about anything. It's are human. It's okay.
0: It's it's true. And it's funny, in, in each of your books, and we meet people who who share some experiences that really help us understand who we are as a people uh, and how we manage those kinds of unseen forces that we're, we're sort of talking about here. And Sarah, I wondered if maybe we could actually go back a little bit and hear about some of these people that we do meet, um, particularly in, in your book, in, in The Believer. And, and one of those people that kind of almost listening to what you're saying, Amal, I'm reminded of, is, is Annie, who is the death oh. doula. Um, which is a remarkable story, and I'd heard about the term before, but hearing her story and how she helps other people through their experiences was was quite powerful. What was important to, for us that you wanted us to learn about what she did and who she was?
2: Well, you know, it, it, so there are six stories that I weave together in this book, and for me, they sit on a spectrum of rationality, and I don't say that to judge, you know, anyone's beliefs, but for me... There were beliefs at one end that I strongly identified with, and there were beliefs at the other end which uh, seemed a bit far out to me. Um, And I started off with these very stringent missionary families who believed that everyone needed to conform to their belief or else they were literally going to hell. Um, And through them, I found the story of the Creation Museum, which were also slightly different Christian fundamentalists in the exact center of America you trying to use science to prove the literal truth of the Bible. And there, what was being kind of reiterated that story at its heart was if the Bible wasn't literally true, then death doesn't exist as a punishment for sin. It just exists for no reason. And our God is not a just God and nothing makes sense. And it was a very kind of very, um, it was reminiscent of a much earlier stage of human development. It's a child's kind of, yearning for sense and justice. And I found that very moving. And so I wanted the next story. I didn't even know what to call it. I didn't know that death doulas exist or what they did, but I was looking for somebody who had a more practiced or skilled, kinder way of sitting with the reality or or understanding the reality of death. And through a normal process of endless Googling and trying to follow the smell of something that may or may not exist, I found the death doulas. And so I only knew about doulas from, you know, having my kids and they are usually women, almost exclusively women that aid you through um, the process of bringing a life into the world. And a death doula is the same thing just at the other end of life. And so they'll help you with all aspects of dying could be something like The medical paperwork or the admin of liaising with the funeral home or the doctors, or it could be a much more emotional support role, or it could be, you know, being in the house and making it a more comfortable place. So it's very bespoke to each person, which is part of its, you know, glory. Um, And so Annie wasn't the first death doula I spoke to, but she was the one that struck me um, as someone I needed to know more about again, that kind of deep curiosity about this person because. Her life had been so full of tragedy and yet she uh, does the selfless, incredibly brave work. Um, and so she was there because, again, there was a very strong story that she told herself and her, she doesn't call them clients, they're just the people that she assists, but tells them about death. Um, and you know, she has been a practicing Tibetan Buddhist for 40 over 40 years. And it was, you know, again, it was a story about death, but this one sat at the more rational end of the spectrum for me, even though it wasn't cognitively a rational thing. It was something that I use that word just in terms of something that made sense to me Um, because it was sufficiently spacious that it allowed all of the crappy parts of what she was dealing with to just be in the room without having to explain them away or sugarcoat them or silver line them. And she very much conceived her role as just sitting there in the hole with with the people that she was helping rather than as amal was you know pointing towards you know creating some guilt in them for not trying hard enough or bringing it on themselves or not being positive enough, but she was just sitting with them in that moment and just feeling you know the shitty parts of being human. It's not really a term of art, but we all know what they are. Um, you know, they could all exist in the room. And so uh, being in the presence of something like that, it, it, I mean, it, it feels holy. Um, and the benefit of the type of research that I do is it's four years of immersive observational research. And I got to see Annie in action, um, aiding a woman named Katrina have the death that she wanted and Katrina as well to so be around that sort of open-eyed facing of death was also holy. Um, whether or not it's made me m- stronger and more comfortable is an entirely different different question. but you know, the Buddhist would say even even a speck better, even a little bit of improvement is you know exponentially better than where you were before. So yeah, that's Annie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she, she's a remarkable um person to meet and I, I, it's interesting that you use the term rational as well this, this idea that by by hearing her story and being with her, that there is that rationality to it. But as we we're saying before, this by hearing other people's stories as well, they start to you can hear how they feel their rationality. Through yeah. their experiences and what they're talking about, even though we might be, you know, find it entirely preposterous as well. So, conversely, hearing the story of Annie and then, you know, on the flip side, going and visiting and spending time with the ghost hunters, how did you start to feel a connection and an affinity with them through that process?
2: Well, it's an interesting um, slip of the tongue. I mean, it's not really something t- I really do, like, I have a, if something is rational, it resonates with me. And that's the wrong filter to be approaching some anyone else's beliefs through, because there are these are issues that really can't be explained away or cognitively rationalized. They're just things that we have to emotionally become more adept at dealing with. Um, and so, with the with the ghost hunters, again, it was a number of months of well, effectively going to work with the Australian. Uh, the Australian Ghostbusters, uh, as they, one man has been clearing houses, <laughs> he's been
0: clearing haunted houses for say, 30 years. Who, who did you call? Who were you going to call? Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It makes me feel better that I can literally
2: call at any moment the Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> so... A house clearer and also an academic by day, who in his free time really does devote all of his kind of leisure time to trying to find empirical proof that ghosts exist. And I think, again, that kind of rational versus something that doesn't adhere to a rational, scientific, methodological framework. That's an interesting human space for me to be in, because you have to hold in your mind to... um, Worlds that are not contemporaneous or too deeply uh, opposed concepts, and we are very dexterous at doing that. We are excellent at cognitive li- at cognitive dissonance and magical thinking. I am no different. We all do this. Um, but this was a specific example for me of something that trying to find proof of um, that no one would accept if they didn't already believe in in ghosts. So, um, but you know, even if you didn't believe in them, and I don't think I do, although I reserve my right to doubt in case I need to call one of these men to come help me. Um there's many human ways we can believe or honor, you know, the presence of the past, you know, in our in our daily lives. What does it mean to be haunted by something? How how does the past manifest in our present? These are questions that are relevant to everyone, regardless of whether they believe in ghosts. And just on that point, most you know people that I talk to about this are the people that buy literary nonfiction small publishing houses and they have a particular mindset about ghosts but then after telling you that it's all bs they want to tell you their ghost story and they expect (laughs) you to come along with it so you know that's (laughs) just humans
0: right which it is just human we've all we 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 don't believe in ghosts, but actually we've all got a story is that right exactly with the the absolutely seen or in the past or our our cousin or our auntie saw something and we kind of semi-believe it and that and that's okay um, reserving a bit yeah. of um belief. it's a, it's interesting because the the different ways that you both weave your own story into your books are, are, are different. So Sarah, you do it in a more sort of journalistic fashion. and so do you, Amal, but you also uh, do the 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 activities. amal, tell me tell me a little bit about um the pursuit that you knew you, you had to do to uncover these various spiritualities in order to sort of, Um, I suppose explore the lengths that people will go to the pursuit uh, to find happiness, to find peace. Tell me a bit about what you needed to do in order to get these stories out there.
1: Um, So really the main thing was I decided that I was going to do all the stuff that I was sceptical about. So, uh, sorry, I should, let me think about this. I I was always a little bit sceptical. So I think I'm that kind of person who I would do something and then if it worked, I'd be like, but would that have happened even if? I had done that or hadn't done that, you know. Like it, I had that sort of way of thinking, and so, but I had my limits. Like Sarah was talking about, sort of her, her you know, the the spectrum of rationality. Well, I have a spectrum of woo, and it was, I was like, how far do I want to slide down this spectrum of woo? Uh, because there were just some things that I was like, you know, I get that the people embracing this space are highly unapologetic and really truly believe in it, and I. I, I could honor that for them and and, and and allow that. Um, but it was like that's not for me. So I I mean, I, I never liked conscious dance. I, I like some of the people I've met through conscious dance, but I really struggled with it. And I to this day I I just I don't think it's my thing, right? So it was it was so just, just sort of allowing my what
0: what is What is conscious dance for those that may not be aware uh, of what this is? This is towards the end of your book as well that you talk about this.
1: Conscious dance is really unconscious dance. It's kind of almost a release. It's a system that, you know, there's not one way of doing it. I I talk a bit about five rhythms in in the book, but that's just one very sort of uh, directed system of unconscious, of conscious dance. But conscious dance is essentially a release of, uh, I guess, emotion. Um, it, it, It can be quite, uh, frenzied, you're building up emotion in the space, you know, people knock things over and wear knee pads because they don't know where they're going to go with it. And I just, It's one of those things where I think it's really about complete abandon in your body and mind and soul. And it's not that it's not effective. I, I just think you have to be somebody who really doesn't care that you might be having um, a religious moment or a religious experience in front of other people. Some people want that. So they they go to these events and there's definitely community. I've seen amazing community develop out of that. And I'm really, really not bashing. And I think it can be a really powerful modality. It's just probably not my choice. Um, but having said that, so the, one of the things that I did in the book that I wouldn't usually do is, um, I had a, a, a spirit guardian drawing done. Um, they make me cringe because I don't like the idea of just this sort of pilfering of Native American tradition. And, and I'll take a pinch of this and a pinch of that. and. You know, the spirit guides are always, you know, Native Americans most of the time they are, and uh, I I just, I don't really get them, so I I was really sceptical about that, but I decided I was going to deliberately get that done. Not to mock it, it was a funny exchange because she was so unapologetic in her belief that there is a a guide named Stone following me around. But I also just really understood, this was her method. This was her creative portal. This was her way of making sense of what to so many doesn't make any sense. And I I thought, I I don't see a lot of harm in that. If a person, I I remember once being at the festival, it was like a mind, body, spirit festival. And I, it was before I was writing the book and I'd considered getting a drawing just out of curiosity because I was sort of like, oh, maybe it'll be fun. And there was a woman waiting for her turn who said, oh, no, um, I had this done years ago and she drew exactly who I had seen in a dream. And so I, I think the, the real uh, pull of this sort of thing are moments like that, where something that you cannot explain, but you know to be true for you, happened. And, you know, I think that's what I was trying to sort of uncover a bit more and realising that. The more you layer it and perform something, the less it is that authentic moment of truth for for the person. So when I had the, I, had, I think I had a karmic healing with crystals, and it was it was silly, it was very nonsensical, and I really almost didn't believe. I actually have to say I struggled to believe that she was really herself, really doing it. But that's rare. Like a lot of the time, the the battle I have is I'm dealing with someone who, like Sarah said, is like really believing this and I don't and so that I don't punch down I it wasn't my my duty to sort of say would you look at this this is this is nuts you know it wasn't that it was it was more like is this helpful like when she's calling on the council of guardians and my spirit guides and I make a joke about you know are they like somewhere waiting in the green room you know eating lunch and scrambling to attention because she's called on them now like I was trying to the humor was more me gently trying to pull it apart a bit and say if you want to look at this logically this is this is silly like it's not it's not possible Mm. and then on the other hand what if I have a really strange experience and she's confirmed it in a ritual like that to me is more interesting than just saying stuff
0: you know. Yeah absolutely it's interesting you used the word community before and and in this era where, as you mentioned it earlier, that we're we're living alone, a lot of us, are, you know, we're in isolation presently. I'm in New South Wales, so, you know, and in Melbourne and other places around Australia, we, we're in lockdown. You know, we're we're lonely in some ways more than we ever were before. We're communicating online. Hi, guys, you know, it's nice to see you. It's a strange thing. So we're less likely to see people's faces. We look in people's eyes, but we've always got a mask on. So connection is a kind of a funny thing. What is it about these different pockets of faith or belief that in some ways we can, you know, we might look at it with a bit of scepticism, but the fact is there are moments there where people can actually join and and have those conversations together amongst their community, you know, where before they may have been on their own entirely. I I wondered if we could talk a, a little bit about that. I mean, Sarah, maybe that's something that is something that you sort of discovered through the process is that, you know, this is a moment where people, regardless of what you believe, you can find someone else like you who you can connect with.
2: Yeah, I mean, my um, the stories in each of uh, in each of the stories in this book, it, there's another story about groups and group behavior, um, and you know, big and small interactions. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't spirituality is one of those words that you know what it means, but then when you're called to actually define it and articulate a definition, it suddenly
0: eludes. You know. <laughs>
2: And then like so the online. Well, exactly, well, exactly. And it's like there's so many um, so many words like that. And mm. e- when you start looking at the concept and how it's applied and how it's understood, it's really about connecting to something or someone outside of yourself. So it can be, you know, the collective of human of humans on earth, or it could be, you know, and any range of things. Um, but it is, you know, this idea that you are not just this atomized being, but you have this connection to something greater. So then the, the stories told in these, you know, groups, m- many of which I was quite jealous of because they had certainty and they had communal support, they had approval and a very clear path towards, you know, there was one way of doing Uh, many, many things that, you know, we kind of drown in choice and discernment by ourselves. So, um, you know, in that sense, there's nothing there to mock. There's, there's, you know, it's a very normal, natural human impulse. I think the question, you know, that we need to then ask is looking at ourselves in our beliefs. Like, are these just the stories that we can tolerate? Are we there because they make us feel better? Um, Are they big enough to kind of encapsulate a range of human experiences? Are we using them to justify our own impulses towards blaming or anger or, you know, to escape our own failures or fears? So, you know, that's a separate question. But just looking at, you know, spirituality itself, it it serves such a beautiful function. And, you know, if we can't find it in healthy ways... um, or, you know, inclusive ways, then we will go towards this very tribal, exclusive um, place, which causes, Mm. as we see now, as has been true through all of human history, a great deal of damage. Mm. Can I just add to
1: that? Yeah, I think (laughs) this is really interesting to me because I, I think connection is essential, as you can see from the way people are behaving um in, in lockdown, once we're being told we can't connect and go out, we want it more than ever. <laughs> uh, and I, I completely understand that I know, it. I miss I, I'm you a, guys. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm a hermit. I can work alone. And yet it was still really challenging for me as well to adapt to this idea that I didn't have the choice anymore of, of that. And, you know, there are a lot of challenges with lockdown in general, I suppose, but, and I'm not trying to belittle that experience, but what I would say about uh, community and belonging, there's two things that I wanted to just sort of think about there. On the one hand, I think there is this really huge upside to it where people find themselves or there is a mirror in others, so we we find ourselves in another and we feel unified. and we feel that you know we're gravitating towards like-minded souls, for example. Um, there's also danger in that because that's how cults begin. That's how cults develop because, it becomes about the group. It becomes about the hive mind. It comes about this is how we do things and only this way. And I'm not saying that every group becomes a cult, so I don't want to be misquoted on that. What I'm saying is I watch a ton of these documentaries about cults. i read all the books. I, I'm so fascinated by the psychology of it uh, because a lot of the time it's people whose lives are actually quite up. You know, they're, they're doing well in life. They're accomplished, uh, healthy and they're the ones who tend to get sucked into cults because they, they have an urge for more, to do more with the world, to improve the world, to make a difference. And then everything happens from there. Um, so I think that that the the benefits of community are very strong and we need community and we need belonging. And I, I can say, the other thing I would say is that it's actually not just a spiritual thing. Spirituality, especially is a solo act for a lot of people, I don't I don't know that I need a group for my spiritual pursuit, but I would say I gravitate towards like-minded people. But what I find really interesting in today's world is I had no idea how categorised we are until I really understood YouTube as a a channel. (laughs) When I looked at YouTube and realised how specific and niche it got Mm -hmm. and how people, honestly, if you knew their name, if somebody said their name, you wouldn't know them, but they have 1 million subscribers on YouTube. So, because they, they unpack backpacks and they tell you all the features. And then there's, you know, there's a guy who... who and I've, watched, I've
0: watched all of those videos to buy a backpack, so oh, I know who these but people
1: are. Yeah, and then <laughs> there's, the, there's a guy who does guns and he's called um, Gun Jesus, I think, because of his beard. And I don't know, like, so there's just... We are just people who need to direct that energy a certain way, our creative energy, because we are creative beings, we want to create, and it doesn't mean artistically necessarily. Um, we have a lot to do and give, and so it tends to get caught up in an interest, like we will gravitate towards an interest. And for some people that is a spiritual pursuit and that becomes their interest. Now, I don't know, like you can't sort of say that's good or bad. It's it's pretty neutral until it's not, if that makes sense. Um, but I actually think it, it's no different to sort of people who are obsessed with one particular way of doing something, and they all find themselves in forums online, and um, subscribing to YouTube channels, like I watch a lot of the pick a card readings on YouTube, I admit that, I have no problem admitting that, because I love tarot, and all of that, I I love the psychology of tarot, Um, and there are all these really young, bright readers from the US especially, who run these channels, and gosh, they have, like, so many followers and people who are interested in how they see the world and what they have to say, but they all speak the same way. There is a language, Mm. there is a a belief system, and it's inherent to how they all operate. They talk about spirit, they talk about manifestation, they talk about um, twin flames, like, which is, like, sort of, I guess, a romantic union that is kind of not going great or something, I I don't really know, but, you know... There's a language I've noticed across all of these videos, and that tells me that they have found a community in those, and I resonate to an extent with those that community, uh, not completely, mm. because I just I'm someone who's very anti, like being completely <laughs> with one community. I, I I like the freedom of not knowing and mm. um, exploring, if I if I can say it that
0: way. Which which I think absolutely comes comes out in in the book, and I think what's what's interesting talking to both of you and. And in this entire conversation, you know, we've talked about community and and connection, uh, and there's lots of different ways that people gather in in their tribes or their groups in order to find that. Whether it's the backpack people, or if it's someone who reads tarot, or, or something like that, um, but it's remembering that no matter what it is. And that's, I think what comes out through this book is that by listening to these stories and hearing what um, each person has to say, um, we actually kind of feel a, a measure of empathy, if that makes sense. We hear their stories and we understand what they're saying. So it's not it's not kind of punching down on them or deriding them, which I think, or, or deriding other people for what they believe because you don't. And I think that's what's um, really interesting and what comes out in, in both of your books. How important is that though, that we are able to um, listen in this age where we are less likely to listen to other people, we talked about it before, you know, we put people down in the blink of a tweet, you know, um, that we can listen and hear other people's stories and not deride others for their beliefs. Sarah, what do you think?
2: Oh, I mean, I think it's nearly impossible to listen to other people most of the time because most of us don't listen to ourselves. So we have a huge amount of internal discomfort with the whole range of realities. You know, the pandemic is a great example, as Amal pointed out. You'd think that this would be the the unifying event of a generation, of course, it's just given us so many um, points on which to disagree. Um, But, you know, we have all of our discontents and our fears and our frustrations. And there's a quote in uh, the book that I, she's uh, the author of Vivian Gornick, and she's a wonderful quote that I'm now going to butcher, but it's about you know Freud's <laughs> underpinning discoveries that we both desperately want to be well and cured and healthy in our minds, and at the same time we desperately resist being well because it would require us to confront all of these you know discomforting truths about our own self, our responsibilities and our own frustrations and jealousies and disappointments and our inability to confront you know, all of the unsatisfactory relationships and instead we idealize what is quite damaging and we blame ourselves instead of, you know, others and we blame others instead of ourselves. And all of these um, ways in which we have cognitive dissonance and projection, all of our defense mechanisms We carry them around, we are willfully blind to them, and then we put all of our shit on everyone else. So it's not before we could ever have a a listening, before we're ever gonna talk about not being so siloed in the accounts that we follow or the news that we read, we have to have a discussion about how we live with ourselves first and foremost, because otherwise it gets too easily redirected um, into blame and anger, which is legitimate a lot of the time as well, but it's not gonna get us anywhere. So again, a long way think, of not answering the question, which I've now forgotten. <laughs>
1: oh, so you have answered. And I, I, I so, find it really fascinating because I think we're actually emotional vacuum cleaners. I just think we're sucking up everything around us all the time and then vomiting it back out and just projecting onto other people. And I, I think we can we can give ourselves you know, a, a bit of a break and say it's all right to be a flawed human the thing that I try to do as for my personal growth is to identify those moments where I am not listening and I'm I have shut down my internal guidance system and absolutely I'm just a projection machine like we're just these little projectors and whenever people like I'm one of those people that when people come to me for advice oh my god like I I'm so I'm like bang I know exactly what to say <laughs> and you know it <laughs> doesn't matter what I'm I've been doing with myself I know how to Talk to other people and tell them what they need to hear. And one of the things I always say to people, and I, I have taken this to heart for myself, is that we are constantly being given breadcrumbs to follow. Constantly, because mm. we are putting stuff out all the time. And so, if 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 we believe we can put stuff out, I'm so sorry about that. Um, I this is the lockdown um problem. <laughs> I um.
0: This is life. This life. Const-
1: that was. This is life. Uh, we are constantly putting things out, you know, on the one hand. Um, So why would not, like, why are we not taking things in as well? Like, of course we are. So what do you do with that? Instead of just sort of um, constantly, um, like, does anybody really feel like they are fully formed and perfect? And, you know, and it's true, once they get to the point where they have solved all their problems, do they really think that uh, they're going to be happy? Well, if they're not truly internally fulfilled and peaceful, they're going to find something to fill the gap because there's a gap and power loves a vacuum, right? So it's sort of that sense of um, as soon as one thing, and I see this all the time and I've been guilty of it myself, as soon as I have, like, you know that that feeling you have, like, once I have this, I'll be fine. And I don't know anyone who's truly ever happy once they've reached that goal. And that's where I think... That is the biggest uh, breadcrumb you can receive. If you if you are constantly finding you're achieving goals and you're still not happy, it doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means what else is there? Like if that's the thing that's not going to make me happy, well, what am I really doing? But, Maybe this is just the thing I'm doing.
0: There's enti- there are entire industries that are devoted to dropping those breadcrumbs for us, spirituality as a, a commodity almost, you know, we see it all the time. It's the Instagram post that says, "If you do this, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You will reach I the answer." More, I'm talking more the stuff that to another
1: person might mean nothing. You know, I I I consider the breadcrumbs to be the things that, um, you know, like just something that's happened that's making me think a bit differently about a situation. Or I had an I had a question that I was asking. Myself, or the universe, or whatever, and and then the next day I meet the exact person I need I need to meet. That's the the stuff. Like I don't I I, I take your point, but I think it's more the the problem is we're caught up in the obvious breadcrumbs, mm. the the ones that are on Instagram and telling us. And I honestly I find that stuff overwhelming. I actually think people are saturated and exhausted, and we we are so like inundated with how to think that we don't know how to think anymore so i i would I actually think so- say yeah no go no just hit reset no
2: i was gonna say that like the algorithm on you know showing you what you want the exact thing that you were looking for you know to buy suddenly on facebook or instagram it's such a cheap way of mimicking what i think you're really getting towards uh, amal which is and jung wrote about it beautifully and it's not a magic it's not woo woo it's you know, the original meaning of synchronicity was yep. meaningful coincidences where you have your interior world, you're alive to the exterior world, and suddenly you find in the happenstance of daily human intercourse or, um, you know, nature around you, the something that that solves your problem or something that, you know, fixes it or, or opens your eyes in a new way. And maybe it's going to be an uncomfortable, you know, thing you don't want to be reminded of or a hard truth or maybe it's going to be feel like a gift. But, you know, as writers, I think we're in a lovely position of being live to those things artistically because, you know, that's just how we find ideas or might, you know, but but all human this is something that like all, all humans have access to. And, you know, the, the internet provides such a cheap, fake version of that that's only mm-hmm. meant to reiterate the stories that we're telling ourselves when I love how you know, the whole universe is open.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's she's you, yeah, what you said. I, I mean, for me, it's, <laughs> we are in constant communication. And that is, to me, the true essence of working with what we don't know. I, I don't think... Yeah. It has to be miraculous. It has to be this sense that you are alive to what is possible in your world. Um, And how many people do you see genuinely doing that? You know, being, what is an idea? It's innovation out of need. It's really, oh, I needed this and so I did that. Or why has nobody talked about this? I will, you know, this is the thing. We're actually kind of all geniuses in that way. We have so much potential and it gets wasted because we're saying to others, please fill my cup for me. Um, I'm not saying you don't need help. You can get people to be guides and help you. But, like, with a a goal in mind of eventually I won't need you. I I will need something else. I'm going to evolve out of this need. But this idea of this beautiful synchronistic communication we have with the invisible or with this world that is nature really working with us uh, not against us. I think there's something to be said about it because I look, you know, as many ghost stories as people have, <clears throat> so many people have stories where they just happened to see the right person the right day uh, or they were thinking about something and a week later it happened. I heard extraordinary mm. stuff that just changed people's lives, you know.
0: Yeah, I see eleven eleven 11 every day, every morning. Uh, but 11
1: 11 is a big one for people <laughs> because you, you see, this is an example of that's Mm. totally you placing a a relevance on something because that is Mm. your internal guidance system. It's you saying, I'm going to use that as a confirmation. Um, It's a very popular one. Most people, I see it on like Facebook a lot, like screenshots of 11.11. And and, and it's because (laughs) we know inherently or instinctively that we are powerful Mm. enough to be able Mm. to direct things to an extent or um, be engaged what, what and I think that's
0: I think that's what's really lovely about um, reading both of your books and spending um, some time you know in the world that you help us as readers or as listeners, um, if you're listening to the book uh, to inhabit and it's it's quite lovely. And I think just as we we get into our final moment, our final minute in fact, I, I wanted to just ask how um, for you Sarah, meeting in people in the book perhaps has changed how you see the world or how you believe? and also Amal for you too. So Amal, maybe I'll start with you. How has that uh, worked out for you?
1: Uh, I I think it just confirms a lot about the nature of humans, which is that we are creative beings, that uh, we have potential for um, a a more peaceful existence, and to be more unified than we realize. And uh, what we have to be careful of is uh, packing up all of those superpowers really, into performance so that it it feels like we're doing something but we're not really changing. I I think that I met people who are really living that truth and their lives were genuinely quite peaceful. And I I see a lot of people talking about privilege and and a lot of these people didn't come out of privilege. They've had hugely traumatic experiences in their lives. So I, I think if we can be less judgmental and sort of try to be less, Projecting of our own angst, or use those moments of judgment to say, why am I, why am I so pissed off right now? (laughs) Like, why is this annoying me? (laughs) For sure. Use that moment. I, I think that's what Mm. I learned the most from the people I met. That there were definitely some very authentic. Authenticity to me is at the heart of everything, and I think Mm. that's the best.
0: That's it for sure. And and Sarah, just uh, your final words.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I.
2: I think just and to come full circle back to the uh, title of the session what I, I learned was that I don't think we are post truth and I don't think we ever were I think we've moved past you know there being one religious orthodoxy for everyone and one political orthodoxy for everyone and you question that on pain of literal death we we've, we've, we've passed that but you know, we're still in this very weird space where we fail to respect the areas uh, where it's totally legitimate and actually good and healthy to have your own personal emotional truth and that they can and should coexist and they will be different. Um, And at the same time, we pretend like factual truth is up for grabs when, you know, it's not scientific fact per se, but science as a method for reaching truth to the degree that we can call it. So we're kind of, the portion, the food is shit and the portions are too small. We have, you know, when it comes to, you know, listening to what people are saying and respecting their truth, and then on the same night calling certain people out on something that's actually quite violent in an interpersonal or literal sense, um, we haven't yet gotten that balance right. But I think it might start um, with kind of just sitting in the discomfort or the you know your tendency to project or whatever knee-jerk emotional reaction good or bad is coming up and just thinking about that again for yourself before you go for someone on Twitter you still might do it but you might have the benefit of thinking again or looking again or listening a little closer Mm. to what's underneath um and you know like Annie said even that little bit of improvement would be exponentially better
0: Mm. just taking a pause Um, Absolutely. Um, What a delight. What a big conversation. Uh, More to come, I'm sure. Um, And thank you to to both of you for sharing your insights. And um, yeah, I've absolutely loved reading both of your books as well. So my thanks to you watching right now at the Antidote Festival and a big thank you to Amal Awad and Sarah Krasnerstein. Thanks, guys. Thank you
2: you both. Thank you.
0: You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House.